Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 641 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 14th of August 2022 as I record this. In today's show I'm talking to Becca Puglisi about writing conflict, why we need conflict, different types and levels of conflict, mistakes in writing conflict, plus we also talk about how she and her co-writer Angela Ackerman work together, how they research and how they knew nothing about business when they started out, but have learned along the way and now have two businesses, lots of intellectual property licensing and plans for the future. The second volume of the Conflict Thesaurus is out on 6th of September 2022. I have volume one here in my study and I'll be getting that next one as well. Conflict really is the lifeblood of story. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news, well, the Department of Justice versus Penguin Random House hearing goes on. And there are so many interesting tidbits coming out of the trial. Uh, Twitter user John H. Mayer uh, has been live tweeting the case and lots of different um, publications have picked this up because it's like airing a lot of dirty laundry in public under oath. And yeah, there is so many interesting things. Uh, a couple of things I picked out this week. Uh, the CEO of Penguin Random House, Marcus Dole, has been interviewed and uh, under oath he said, Everything is random in publishing. Success is random. Bestsellers are random. So that is why we are the random house. <laughs> so yeah, apparently that is actually why it's called random house. I didn't know that. I thought that was interesting. Defence also asked uh, what Dole considers to be the biggest threat to publish t- publishing today. He says all access, arguing that book subscription services will have a tectonic influence on the revenue of the industry, on author advances, and ultimately on author income and on diversity. He says around 20 to 25% of heavy readers account for 80% of the revenue of the industry. There's that 80-20 rule again. Uh, So he says if the really dedicated readers go all access into subscription, the revenue pool is going to be really small, the retail sector will be gone, authors are going to lose. So I have a few thoughts on this. So first of all, this subscription is actually what a lot of people want. And I'll come back to this in a minute. But this is exactly why I keep emphasising digital ownership and why as the web is, emerges into Web 3, and of course, it will never be a cutoff line. Yesterday was Web 2 and today is Web 3. It will just be this kind of slow change. But digital ownership is a fundamental shift because everything right now is access and NFT book editions will become critical for digital revenue, in my opinion, obviously. But when the penny drops about digital ownership and the fact that right now you don't own pretty much anything digitally, uh, I think we're going to see this emerge as a different um, form. So 
with NFTs, obviously, I've been talking about this over and over again. If you haven't picked up on any of my episodes, because you still have doubts, uh, of course, I've linked to them all at thecreativepen.com forward slash future. But now the hype cycle is over post crypto crash, what we are seeing are real builders, real solutions, and a lot of things emerging away from the hype cycle, which I think is a great thing. It it does feel like the sort of post 2000 internet boom and then bust and then the real internet revolution grew out post bust. And that is kind of how it feels. So yeah, if you haven't, if the penny hasn't dropped on why NFTs are important, then this is literally why. It is that digital ownership versus digital access model. Uh, And of course, let's just talk about subscription programs. I think subscription programs are brilliant. (laughs) In fact, we should all use them as much as possible. And uh, I use them as a a reader. I also um, have, have some books in well, I have a lot of books in subscription programs. My main issue is that um, Amazon's subscription program, Kindle Unlimited for eBooks, is that it's exclusive. That is my problem with it because there are loads of other subscription programs that my books are in. Um, you might read them on Scribd or on uh, Kobo Plus or on pff, any of the other ones, Audible or audiobooks or whatever. But pretty much every other, well, actually every other subscription program has an uh, exclusive option. So as in you can, uh, sorry, inclusive option where you can be in it and you can also be in everything else. So I want more of my content in subscription programs. In fact, I am so waiting for Spotify to get into audiobooks so I can put my entire audiobook backlist into Spotify as um, into their presumably subscription program. But the point and the point I kind of I half agree with Dole and I half don't. I think he's sort of over overreaching on the impact because of all the other possibilities. So my main thing is don't build your entire income stream on subscription models. You need multiple streams of income. Yes, you've heard that so much from me over the years. And a good way to use subscription is as one way to get readers into your ecosystem and a percentage of those as ever, as Kevin Kelly talked about like 20 years ago now, a thousand true fans. So say you get 10,000 downloads, some of those people are going to come over and become your fans. Um, And then you can offer them direct only, as I talked about in the uh, Shopify uh, episode, or premium products over time. So not all your income comes from that lowest revenue rung of the ladder. And yeah, so I mean, obviously, that tweet was out of context, but and I can't believe he doesn't understand that subscription programs and are just not going to eat the world. Because I am one of those whale readers. I'm definitely one of those 20% who account for 80% of publishing revenue. I <laughs> I mean, literally, I spend most of my, well, most of my disposable income, I probably spend on books and travel, hence my books and travel podcast. But um, I'm in multiple subscription programs. I also buy books in every format and on multiple platforms and in different stores. So just because someone is reading something in one way, that doesn't mean they don't read in other ways. So just last night, I finished a novel uh, as an ebook that I bought from a traditional publisher at a full price, which is more expensive than the print edition. I have books that I've borrowed from Kindle Unlimited because I'm a reader there. I've downloaded a box set from Audible on uh, one of my credits. I bought another one a la carte in their uh, sale. I've got 
Morgana Best's print copy of Stop Making Others Rich arrived, even though I have the ebook copy as well, which I bought direct from her Shopify store. And this week I also went to the local independent bookstore and bought some travel books in paperback. Uh, I also, amusingly, I buy in multiple formats. So I mentioned Morgana Best there. I also bought Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, which is an oldie but a goodie. And uh, I'm getting a lot from it. And I bought it in uh, ebook first. And then I was like, oh, I really want to listen on my morning walk. So I bought the audiobook. And then I've also bought the paperback because I want to reference it later. And this is <laughs> so I do buy in multiple formats. Um, so yeah, readers read. <laughs> we love books. And increasingly, I think we don't care who the publisher is, but we do care about what we want, whether it's entertainment, whether it's information, whether it's inspiration, and we will consume cross-platform, cross-format. So let's just not fall into this, oh my goodness, this one thing is going to eat the world, because I just don't think that's true. What I think might be happening is that the publishers are not getting into all these other things. So for example, um, I just don't understand why, now I've been doing this Shopify store, I do not understand why publishers don't sell direct. Why doesn't Penguin Random House have a Shopify store? I mean, seriously, I just don't understand it because they could take a lot more of the money. It doesn't, like, I just literally don't understand it. Why haven't they done that? And not just the big guys. All the small publishers should be selling direct. It just makes sense. So yeah, anyway, (laughs) that's my rant for today. Uh, But I'm sure many more interesting things are going to emerge from this trial. I mean, it really is the most senior people in publishing airing a ton of secrets in public under oath. Goodness me. Yeah. So Publishers Weekly have a handy page covering all their articles. And if you just, I mean, you can just Google DOJ versus PRH um, and, and have a look at, there's loads and loads of stuff coming out of it because, of course, journalists are fascinated with all of this too. So a few marketing things. Drafter Digital announces a new partnership and new opportunity for author promotions. They have partnered with Humble Bundle, a leading online platform that sells games, ebooks, software and other digital content to begin curating titles from Drafter Digital and Smashwords catalogues into incredible value packed bundles that also raise money for a good cause. So I've been involved with Story Bundle um, for years now and I love Story Bundle. I will have more coming up and it is brilliant. Uh, Bundles are fantastic. They do bring revenue, but they also are great for discoverability and they bring new readers into your ecosystem. And of course, the cross-promotional side of things is is amazing because all the different authors promote the same bundle. Humble Bundle also has, it's been going for years now, and they have a massive email list from what I can tell. So you are reaching, this almost reaches outside the ebook ecosystem. So I think this is a really interesting promotional possibility. Um, Mark Leslie Lefebvre says it's a win-win-win situation and he is now Director of Business Development for Drafter Digital. Obviously used to work at Kobo, also an indie author and uh, yeah so interesting times. I think this is very interesting. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, The goal of this partnership is to help Drafter Digital authors continue to reach new readers and fans of their writing in the global marketplace. So hopefully there'll be more on that later. Uh, I'll certainly be opting in to be considered. Considered. Apple Books 
great to see Apple Books releasing something, which is they have released a new promotions page, which will generate links for various social media sites and include your affiliate link to the store and help you generate graphics. So there's no really easy short link, but links in the, sh- the show notes. Um, but yeah, new promotions page, Apple Books. So in my personal update, well, How to Write a Novel is now available everywhere in all formats, ebook, audiobook, paperback, hardback, large print. You can get it everywhere at your favourite platform. You can obviously still buy direct from me at creativepenbooks.com, but you can also get it everywhere else. Also, I would really appreciate reviews and many of the stores allow reviews even if you didn't buy it on that store. So reviews on any of the usual places would be much appreciated or Goodreads or wherever you put book reviews. And you can also leave reviews on creativepenbooks.com as well. Just go back to the product page, scroll down and you can leave a review. I appreciate all reviews on any platform. You're all amazing. They help more readers find the book. So thank you for that. Also, I have two books out in Italian this week, Successful Self-Publishing and How to Make a Living with Your Writing, which I am not going to read in Italian, the titles. Uh, They are available now. They're obviously on all the, um, they're actually only on Amazon. They are translated and published by Michaela Nicolosi, who has um, uh, an Italian publishing company now, and you can get several of my nonfiction books in French and German as well. So uh, I'm always open to licensing deals for foreign rights, and those new books in Italy have been the top of the charts on Amazon.it, obviously in the the small authorship side of the charts. Uh, but clearly there's a demand, so I think that's really interesting. And sometimes we think it's too late in self-publishing, we think, oh my goodness, things have been going so long. It's all developed. It's all mature. But many authors in many countries, in, and indeed in English, are just discovering the indie author way and want to learn. So I think, yeah, I'm really thrilled. So yeah, if you read Italian, <laughs> check out those books on the IT store or in Italian on any uh, um, Amazon store, which is very exciting. So I've also been writing. I'm on my second self-edit with my short story, Soldiers of God. It's so nice to write some fiction. (laughs) Uh, The title is named after a medieval papal bull or edict that comes from the Pope um, called Militia Dei, which is Latin for Soldiers of God. And it features, and it's a real one, by the way, this is how I write my arcane books. I find real things in history and then spin them into fiction. And the short story features Martin Klein in my arcane world. And he's He's like Q out of James Bond. He's like my geek archetypal character. And he's at the Vatican Digital Scanning Project, which is, again, true. And he's building an AI algorithm to surface interesting lost knowledge uh, of biblical knowledge and and all of this. And there is so loads of cool stuff in the Vatican archives. And of course, Martin discovers a document that leads to a Templar secret hidden under Paris. And it is pretty fun. So I'm going to have that out in the next two weeks. I'll probably have just a week of direct sales before going wide as it's a short story, but also I'm walking the Camino in September. So I've got like this burning platform to get everything done. I am also this week, I'll be um, getting into the creator economy stuff. I will also have that done before I go. (laughs) 
I just, I've got to clear the decks essentially. And talking about travel on my Books and Travel podcast this week, I talked to Nora Dunn, the professional hobo, about being a long-term digital nomad, why we keep traveling and why sometimes we need to stop and build a home base. So uh, you can find the Books and Travel podcast on wherever you are listening to this. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments. Jen Cosgrove sent a, lo- sent a lovely picture. She said, uh, love listening to your podcast while I walk today, Lakeside in Inlet, New York. Thank you for the thought-provoking and entertaining podcast. I'm glad they're entertaining, Jen. Uh, Susanna, the Nordic mum, said, love, love, love the latest episode about selling books direct with Shopify. I only have one nonfiction book out, but from the get go, I started my Shopify store thanks to your earlier episode with Katie Cross. So much gold here and cannot wait to learn more. Brilliant. I'm so happy with loads of people have emailed and commented and said this, like they are enthusiastic about selling direct. Yeah, it is. It is a good, it's a good move. But as, as I've said, I did want to read this comment from Josh Hall, who said, I think this was on YouTube. He said, I love this podcast. I really enjoyed Morgana Best Perspective. I'm a beginning author. I have the first draft of one novel written and another in the works. I've been weighing heavily how I want to sell my books. I've leaned towards selling direct, bypassing Amazon altogether. And this episode pretty much confirmed it for me. So, Josh and anyone listening, I wanted to make it clear and I thought I had made it clear in the episode. I'm not saying you have to only sell direct unless you want to, of course, having having products that are direct sold are, are brilliant. But I basically am saying publishing extremely wide where you do have books on all the platforms. Now, you might have digital extras or um, direct extras, sorry, and direct only special editions. Um and indeed, products. But yeah, I I don't know if I was starting out, I wouldn't miss all the rest of the wonderful platforms we have access to because of just selling direct. Remember, you have to get traffic to your store and that's actually pretty hard. So I think, yeah, personally, I I would say go wide, go really, really wide, get everything everywhere and have a direct store um, if that's what you want. But um of course, I don't want to be prescriptive, Josh or anyone else. Uh, I just don't want to have an email saying, you said that you should just sell direct because that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it's a, it's a brilliant option for uh, a, a specific group of your audience. So remember, you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. You can send me pictures of where you're listening or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. And talking about brilliant options for publishing, today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. And in fact, I'm mentioning subscription programs. So one way to reach a new audience on Kobo is through the subscription reading service Kobo Plus, which is (laughs) non-exclusive. So you can reach readers through Kobo Plus as well as being wide. Kobo has always been brilliant at focusing on the wide model. Kobo Plus has been a great success and is now available to readers in Canada, Belgium, the Netherlands, Portugal, France, Italy, Australia and New Zealand. The great thing about Kobo Plus for authors is that it reaches an entirely new audience who may be trying digital reading for the first time. 
The Kobo Writing Life team know how important it is that authors retain control of their books. And as such, exclusivity is not required. Do you want to try out a book in Kobo Plus Canada, but not in the Netherlands? You can do that. Simply select the areas you want to be included in the rights and distribution section of your book. If you're choosing to publish widely as an author, Kobo encourage you to make your books available to as many readers as possible. And with Kobo Plus, it's a great way to gain and build an audience. Don't want to opt your books in one by one? The KWL team can bulk opt in your books if you email them at writinglife at kobo.com. And of course, you can always email them with any of your questions. If you want to learn more about KWL and Kobo Plus, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social. Create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating this show is sponsored by my patrons and especially the in-between shows like the Shopify show, uh, all supported by my patrons. So thanks to new patrons this week, Joe Webb, Don Arnold, Christy Smith, DM Guay, uh, or Guay, and Penelope Teasdale. Thank you, new patrons, and thank you to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. You are amazing, and I am just so appreciative that you continue to find the show useful. It is it's just I guess it's part of my meaning of continuing to do this is that I want to still be useful. And yeah, the patrons help me. <laughs> And by asking questions as well, they kind of direct me to what might be useful. So you can support the show with just a few dollars or euros or pounds or whatever your currency is. They have a lot now. And uh, you can support for uh, less than a coffee a month or a couple of coffees a month, whatever you like. And you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio where I answer questions from patrons. So support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Becca Puglisi is an international speaker, writing coach and best-selling author of the Thesaurus series for writers, including the latest volume of The Conflict Thesaurus. Becca also writes YA and historical fiction and can be found at writershelpingwriters.net along with her co-author Angela Ackerman. So welcome back to the show, Becca. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be back. Oh, yes. An exciting topic today. Now, you've been on the show twice before, and I will mention those episodes in the introduction. So we're just going to jump into conflict today. So let's start off with a definition. What is conflict anyway, and why do we need it? Sure. I think that conflict is anything that causes difficulty for your character. So we think tend to think of conflict at the story level, like they have this goal and they're trying to achieve this objective and there's conflict that is standing in the way. Usually it's like a, it's a villain or it's some kind of an antagonist, but conflict happens throughout the story. It happens at the scene level, but happens as they're going about their day and conflict can be big and, and really explosive, but it also can be small and minor. It's anything that causes them difficulty that makes things more difficult for them as they are trying to get to that end goal. So you mentioned there that there are big and small ideas of what conflict is. So let's get into some specifics. So what are the sort of big story level examples of conflict? Sure. So we had to figure this out when we were writing the conflict the source because there were so many, <laughs> so many different kinds of conflict. And we thought, how can we make it manageable for people? So we came up with some categories. So you have dangers and threats. So these are things that 
are causing a serious like physical threat to your character. Maybe it's a weather event or a somebody who is stalking the character or a physical attack. You know, those kinds of things are are kind of big and and explosive or or just I call them kind of macro. They're like big problems that the character is is going to have to face and deal with. You also have increased pressure and ticking clocks. So this is when, of course, you you add something that creates a deadline for the character. So they have this goal and they have certain things that they have to achieve. And it's already very difficult, you know, if you've set your story up properly. But then you you add a conflict that creates a deadline. So now they are, their timeline is shortened. They have to work quickly. They have to work without a lot of planning, maybe without the resources that they have. Those are very often good for the overall story level kind of conflicts. And then you have just relationship friction. This is something that happens in, in every single story, regardless of the genre. You could have a thriller, a dystopian, a romance. There's going to be relationship problems. There should be relationship problems because we're all about relationships, right? And our characters are going to have relationships with different members of the cast. They're going to be interacting with people all throughout the story. And so that's really where the kind of the meat and potatoes is, in my opinion, for conflict, because it's so natural. And it's something that the reader is totally going to relate to because they have these kind of conflicts. It could be something big with a romantic partner. It could be something, you know, really annoying with the barista at the coffee shop. It's all different levels of conflict can happen at the relationship level. And it's so organic and and just common to the human experience that it can happen all throughout the story for, for any kind of story. So the different kinds of conflict can happen at different levels of the story, whether it's an overarching conflict that's going to be kind of big and seemingly important. But the smaller level conflicts are really important too, because they really offer the setup for those bigger moments by creating choices for the character by creating consequences that are then going to have to be dealt with. Mm, so much to unpack there. And it's funny because I think the word conflict, I feel like a lot of people think, oh, well, that's just for big disaster movies. You know, it's right. Armageddon, it's it's the big meteor, it's Jaws, is the big shark. But you've mentioned their sort of relationship, friction, other people. But can you give some, I guess, other examples? So for people who aren't writing these thriller books like me, I mean, I, I know conflict conflict. But many people are writing a sort of, I guess, smaller in inverted commas book. So can you give a few more examples of those? Because I feel like that's where a lot of people struggle. Yes. So, so losing an advantage. You know, there are a lot of conflicts that can come up that that remove something advantageous for the character. Something as simple as losing your keys. This is a problem because now the character has to look for their keys. Now they're going to be late for the important meeting that they're having with the important person in their life or that step that they're taking towards achieving that goal. It's now going to be more difficult because they lost their keys. I mean, it seems like something so small or a phone breaking or just these little things that shouldn't really be a big deal. They have these, the butterfly effect that causes the ripples that create these bigger problems in the story. So things like losing an advantage, Ego-related conflicts, things where the character makes a mistake, maybe, or they are slighted in some way. It could be a very small situation at the grocery store or at work, but it becomes a thing for the character because their ego has been attacked. And now they are compromised, really, and are very likely to react in a way that is not the best way to respond. So there's just, there's tons of little, you know, a, a car accident, a fender bender, something that's not a major, major deal with life-threatening impact 
impacts. But all of these things can cause, they can cause financial difficulties, they can cause relationship problems, they can cause problems in the character being able to get to that overall goal. So they can really, they can be so small and seemingly inconsequential but they do have big effects for the story. Right, and we'll come back to some more of those. But I, let's just come back to the bigger question. It's why do we even need conflict in our books? Like, why can't everyone just have a happy time and have a, a nice story? You know, if we're writing a, a heartwarming romance or just a happy story in general, why do we even need this type of thing? Right, and that's something Angela and I had a lot of conversations about when we were writing the latest book, some questions kept coming up for us about that. And really the, the answer is tension. Conflict creates tension. If you have a, a character who they have a goal, there's something that they really want, they're going to go after it. If nothing ever stands in their way, if they don't ever have any challenges or any difficulties, then there's no tension because there's no doubt in the reader's mind as to the character's ability to succeed. They know that they're going to get there because I mean, they just, every step of the way, it's like clear sailing. So conflict creates barriers and it creates difficult situations that cast doubt in the reader's mind as to, are they going to be able to get there? Are they going to be able to get there intact and whole? Is this going to be a really difficult, horrible situation for them trying to, to go along this journey to get where they're going? And so conflict creates that tension because the reader doesn't know. And they then become invested in the character because when the reader is worried about the character, they care about the character and what's happening with them. And so then they want to keep reading because they want to make sure that the character is going to be okay. And it creates this interest because they're not sure. They want to keep reading to, to get answers to their questions and to see what's going to happen. So it's really multifaceted. I mean, it, it creates the tension that you need which is is good for garnering reader interest, but it also garners reader empathy because they start caring about the character and they want to know that they're going to be okay and that everything's going to work out. Mm. And again, from the reader perspective or, you know, thinking of TV shows and the viewer perspective, it's like, I don't really want to watch or just read about somebody whose life is all perfect and it's all going to stay perfect. If I watch something right. or read something and, and it starts off where everything is good, then the rules of story dictate that if it starts high, it's going to go low. <laughs> it might come back to high, but it, there are kind of things that we expect as readers and viewers, right? We don't expect happy people in happy land. Right. And that's kind of the irony for me is that that's what we want in real life. We don't want conflict. We want everything to be great and easy and simple. But if we use that in our stories, it's like, it's the kiss of death, you know? So it's just this weird, like, this is the way that we want to be in real life, but we can't make it that way for our characters. Right. So let's talk about internal conflict, because I feel like, again, I'm a thriller writer. I find it very easy to come up with external conflict, right. but I feel like internal conflict, it can layer over that. It can be completely different. So what is internal conflict? And tell us a bit more about that. It's so, so important. I think that this is something that a lot of people underestimate when we we talk about conflict. Because like you said, like the obvious conflicts, those are easier to go with. They're easier to come up with. And they are, we, we have this idea that like big conflict is going to be more engaging. You know, the, uh, the car crash, the explosion, the unexpected pregnancy and the romance, lots of these things we think are going to be, that's what's going to pull people in because it's really dramatic. But really, I think what pulls people in is the journey of a character and their struggle. And the struggle for a character, very often the most impactful struggles are the 
the internal ones. It's basically, those are the conflicts that live within the character. They're those character versus self difficulties. A lot of times they have a, an element of cognitive dissonance with the character wanting things that, that are at odds with each other. Like they may, the character might want two things. They can't have of both things. They can actually only have one of them, but they really want both of them. Or they may be wanting something that is bad for them. It's going to cause a problem with their human needs. It's going to cause a void in that area if they pursue something that's actually not good for them. Um, another example is feelings, situations that are going to cause feelings for the character that they don't necessarily want to experience. Indecision, guilt, self-doubt, these kinds of, of feelings are uncomfortable. They're going to want to avoid that but what if it's something that they really, they need to do, or they need to address that is going to naturally bring about those feelings, um, conflicting duties and responsibilities. We've all been in that situation in real life where we have things that we need to do and we can't do all of them, or we have two things that are equally important, you know, and it's that, that internal struggle of how, where do I focus my time? How do I prioritize lots and lots of different ways that we can create situations for characters that are going to cause that internal conflict, that, that struggle on the inside. And it's super necessary for any character that is working a change arc, any, any character that is going on a journey of internal change throughout the course of the story, they have to have many, many internal conflict opportunities because that's the only way that they're going to be able to really look at themselves, look past the, the habits and the personality traits and all the things that they thought were fine and they thought were actually good and realize, hold on, what is holding me back? Why do I keep tripping over this one thing? It keeps causing me problems over and over again. I don't want to do this thing, but I keep doing it. Why is that? And they start to make changes in order to embrace more healthy habits, more healthy responses and coping mechanisms. So internal conflict is the only way that the character is going to actually be able to go through that change. It's the only way that they're going to have the opportunity to look at themselves honestly and start seeing the changes that need to be made and then be able to take the steps toward making that change. So it's hugely important, I think, in any genre for any story where the character is on a, a change arc. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, I feel like the, these are the things that can be very, in a way, harder to do, because as you say, they're kind of less obvious, but can be much more more powerful. And so just coming back to that, the change arc, because of course, with your thesaurus, um, your and Angela's thesaurus series, you've got wounds, you've got the emotion thesaurus, obviously, there are character flaws, there are all kinds of different things that we can have in our characters. And this internal conflict, I feel, I feel. almost maybe ties all of those together. And But in, in one way, it feels very, very complicated, especially if you're not a plotter. So I'm not a plotter. I'm a discovery writer. And when we talk about all these things, it just feels like overwhelming that I need some kind of checklist for make sure a character has this and that and the other and this, all these different things in order to make the change arc work as you talk about that. So what are your thoughts and your tips, I guess, for authors who want to include incorporate all these rich levels for character, but are discovery writers like me and don't want to overcomplicate it. Yeah, that's that's tricky because I do believe that a certain amount of, of planning, it really is helpful. I'm not saying that that you have to go to the extent that hardcore plotters go to. There's And that's, I think, the, a problem that a lot of writers have is that they kind of see that as a black and white thing, that I'm either a plotter or a pantser. But there are so many levels in between where you can be a discovery writer, but you can have a general idea of 
the outer journey, you know, what the character's outer goal is, that that story objective, and how they're going to get there and what the main conflict is going to be for them, how they're going to overcome that. But you can have the same picture for their inner journey. You can recognize, okay, what are the things that are going to get in the way of my character achieving that story goal? Where might that have come from? What is something that they might have to deal with or, or change in order to find success and achieve that story goal? And you can do the same amount of, it doesn't have to be this huge amount of planning. It's just, in my mind, a matter of, of considering it beforehand so that you can see what the outer journey is and what the inner journey is. And then as you go along, you have it in your mind of, it's very easy to, it's not easy. It, we know that we have to plot the outer journey and that we have to to keep that in mind as we go along to make sure that we're headed the right direction. But the inner journey was something that we don't think a whole lot about. And so it's very important in, in my mind to have that kind of the vision of that before you start, how it dovetails into the outer journey, because then it's a lot easier to keep it in mind and to remember as you go along. The character is doing this, this, and this, and this, but they also need to be working on internally taking that that journey and making the changes that they need to make. And conflict really is a really great way of tying the two together because, you know, your character's on this journey and they have these, this goal that they're trying to achieve, but things keep getting in their way. Well, the conflict can provide, it's going to, it's going to provide difficulties for them externally, but it also can provide at the same time opportunities for internal growth. You know, conflict comes most of the time with a choice. There's a choice that the character has to make. They're going to react this way or that way. They're going to face the conflict or they're going to run away from it. And those choices are what really provide the opportunity for internal reflection or growth. The character can recognize the problems that they're having internally, and they can take steps toward them, or they can choose to deny what is really there, and they can fall back on their old dysfunctional habits and stay where they are and not grow. So the conflict is kind of what ties the two journeys together, in my opinion. It's really kind of a beautiful, like one stop fits all with conflict because you're doing what needs to be done with the external journey, but it also provides the opportunity for internal growth at the same time. Well, I'll just add that as a discovery writer, you can also do this stuff in the edit because I want people to feel like they don't have to have any plan beforehand because that's how I go about it. But as you say, I mean, I put the, when something happens, so some conflict happens, I'm writing a scene and something happens. And as you say, it's the choice and how the character reacts. And it actually can be at that point when you investigate this stuff you don't need to go into it I don't feel you don't need to go into it with a plan I I feel like the intuitive angle can be just as interesting actually and based on how your character might act in the moment and then of course in the edit I mean I find your books useful the thesaurus useful for going back later I never ever ever use this stuff in the actual writing process in the first draft only in the the edit process Yes, I agree a hundred percent. And again, everybody's process is different. And I know a lot of people who they use our resources, some of them use them in the planning stage before they write, and then many of them use them for editing. And like you said, it's not necessary for everybody to have a plan. I know that a lot of people do use the editing stage or the drafting stage as they're writing and the words are flowing and they realize, oh, I need to, you know, this is a good opportunity to explore X. They'll make notes. And then that way, when they are editing, they can come back 
and look at it that way. And that's a great way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important. So let's, because your thesaurus books are super useful, but I, again, they're pretty jam-packed full of ideas. So let's sort of role play a little bit. So I, let's say I'm looking at my edits or I'm writing my first draft and I'm going, do you know what? This is a little bit boring. <laughs> my writing seems quite flat. Is anything actually happening here? So how would someone then go and use the conflict thesaurus? Like what, where, how would they then go and find the right idea to fit their book? Well, there's, I think, a couple of different things to consider when you're looking at at problems with your story and you suspect that conflict may be the problem. First of all, a lot of, a common mistake is that, that people don't vary the kinds of conflict. It's always the same kind of conflict over and over. You know, it's always relationship friction or it's always conflict that's happening at work. And after a while, it starts to fall flat. So one way that the books can be useful is that they give you an abundance of conflict options where you can look through the categories, look through the table of contents and just see what kind of options do I have? What have I used and what have I not used and what makes sense for my character in this scene? And so varying the kinds of conflict is important, but also the intensity, the level. We've talked about this, about how everything can't be explosive and really monumental. Sometimes you have to have a variety of of intensities. And so that's where I think the book really comes in helpful because each conflict entry It has some information on minor complications that can come about from that conflict. It also has options for potentially disastrous results. So you're looking at different conflict ideas and you think, well, I really want something that I really like this particular conflict scenario for the scene, but I don't, you know, it's maybe the beginning of the scene. I just want a a smaller level. Well, then you can go with a minor complication coming about out of that conflict, or if you do need something really big, then you have those options too. So that's the other thing that that writers should keep in mind is that we want to vary the kinds of conflict that we use, but we also want to vary the intensity of the conflict. And that's where I think the book, it, it can help on a number of levels with that. It's, it's really, I look at our tools, again, like you said, they can be used at different points in the process. For me, the brainstorming aspect of our books is is really a big part of the benefit for them because they give people ideas when they don't know where to go or when they have so many options that they're overwhelmed and they don't know how to narrow it down. So that's, in my opinion, one of the biggest ways that it can help. And then I guess one question that was just coming up there was how do you research these books? Is it that you're just, you start somewhere, but then you have to mine the existing world of story because they are seriously they're huge (laughs) I know it's 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 interesting I mean some of them are a lot more research heavy than others Um, the wound thesaurus that one like scared the poo out of us just because it's real you know these are things that people are really struggling with and so the pressure to get the details right and not misrepresent anything was enormous and so there was a lot a lot of research for that the occupation thesaurus the same thing just because you to get the facts right, or else you have people coming and saying, hello, I do this for a living. And that is not the way it works. So some of them are are really research heavy. And then some of them, we find that researching the concept itself kind of clarifies things. The conflict thesaurus, we didn't have to do a ton of research, the entries themselves. It was more a matter of, okay, here's the scenario. How does it impact the story? Like, how can we get creative with this conflict and apply it in a storytelling context, as well as keeping it real life. So some of the times there's a lot of research and then sometimes it's just, it's more creative license. And that to me is a little more fun. You know, when you take something and then apply it to a story and think, okay, how can I make this different? How can I keep it from being same old, same old? How can I I add 
interest to this complex scenario for writers and really make this something that they never really considered from that angle before. So it really depends on the subject matter. Yeah. And then I know many people are interested in co-writing and I've co-written a a few books, but you and Angela have done a a lot now together. So what are your tips on co-writing? Like, when does it work? How do you get through your own interpersonal conflicts? You know, Angela and I, I, I always joke with her. I'm like, it's like Forrest Gump. We're like peas and carrots. I mean, we just have always been on the same page. We used to say that we were the Borg when we first started because we just are very, very similar. We're similar in our personality and our values um, and in our the way that we approach writing. And that has made it very easy for us to, to work together. I think that the biggest thing is mutual respect. That's the biggest thing that we have found because we do have differences and there are things that we don't agree on and you have to just have mutual respect for each other. You have to recognize I am not always right. I have weaknesses and and she compliments me in certain ways. And when it comes to those kinds of areas like marketing, I mean, she's really, really good at marketing. I have zero idea really what to do there. So when it comes to marketing, I defer to Angela. And there are other, we can flip that around in areas where I am strong and she is is not as much so. So that's, I think the biggest thing of when you want to co-write is recognizing that this is a team effort. You have to kind of set your ego aside and have mutual respect for the other person. And you have to really, I think it's super important to find people who fill your gaps. If you are working with someone who is exactly like you and who has the same strengths as you, then there's no one to to handle the areas where you're weak. So that has been incredibly beneficial for us. It's a beautiful pairing where we do get along really well, but we also, we have strengths and weaknesses in different areas so we can complement each other. Mm. And then what uh, tools do you use for actually doing the writing? Do you use Google Docs or Scrivener or or what are you using so you don't like overwrite each other's stuff? Because I know that's an issue with many co-writers. Well, we kind of do it a little bit differently. We like when we're writing a new book, we come up with an outline and we figure out what the content is going to be and then we split it okay, you're going to write these sections and I'm going to write these sections. So it's completely separate in the beginning, you know, so there is no overlap there. Then when we put it together, we swap and we edit each other's half. And so in doing that, we're each able to see, oh, I really touched on this part, this aspect already in my section. So we're going to have to pare some of that down and so that we don't have too much echo. And then also it helps us to create a blended style. And then we edit it again, we switch again. And by the second round of edits, it it all pretty much sounds like one person instead of, you know, Angela clearly wrote this section and this sounds more like Becca. And I think that that's something that we have done pretty well over the years, because I don't think that in reading a book, it's easy to, to read through it and say, oh, this was Becca's and this was Angela's. It all sounds like one person. We just use word. I mean, we each write our stuff ourselves. And when we're finished, we send it to each other. I put it together and then we swap it back and forth. It's really kind of old school, but it works for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone has their own method, but yeah, your voice does sound, your voice, I say, you know, singular, but it does sound like a voice because it does sound like one writer, which I think is uh, really interesting. But tell us also about your, I guess, your business model and your multiple streams of income, because many listeners want to write nonfiction books. And I feel like you guys have really created this business around nonfiction. So tell us about your multiple streams of income and the various businesses. Sure. We actually have two 
businesses. We have writers helping writers that started when we decided to publish the emotion of the Saurus. That's where we have our blog. It's where we sell our books. And it's really how we, we do all of our speaking engagements through that business that started first. And then we had somebody come to us a couple of years later and said, Hey, I really would love to see all of your sources like in one spot, one digital online situation where we can hyperlink everything and it'll be searchable and people can jump back and forth between the thesauruses. And we thought, oh my gosh, that would be so great. So we started One Stop for Writers, which has turned into a much bigger offering than what we had originally planned. And that's a separate business because we were in a business with someone from Australia with Lee Powell, who was the one who, who did all of the engineering for it. He wrote all the code and set everything up in worked with us to maintain the site in the beginning. So we have two different businesses. I like to think of it as, as writers helping writers is kind of the, the instructive informational. This is where you learn the books tell you all the different aspects of storytelling and how to incorporate them and how to really write those areas of storytelling well. And then one stuff for writers is where we are able to apply it a little more easily because we've created tools and resources containing the content from our books. So, you know, that you with uh, with actually applying the information that you've learned. So they're very similar, but they really uh, accomplish two different things. And it's been a real journey. You know, I mean, we knew nothing about business when we first started. Angela and I were just really good together and it was very easy. Our, our partnership was like agreement that we had. It was like one page. I mean, it was, I don't know that it would hold up in court. It's crazy simple because that's all that we needed, you know, and then we got into business with someone else and we had to educate ourselves on everything about business, about equity partnerships and how to make that work and IP licensing to protect the content that we had written. And just that's one of the biggest things that I think writers struggle with once they start, um, once they get a little bit farther down the track and they start doing well, is there are so many things that, that you don't know how to do. And as you start succeeding, then you really have to educate yourself. You have to learn how to do things that you're not good at or that you uh, have never done before. And that's been a huge part of the journey for each of us. I know when I, when I got married, I was engaged to my husband. I, I said to him, listen, when we have kids, you basically have two jobs. The kids have to have, they have to be able to have a tan and they have to be able to balance their checkbooks. And that's all on you because I can't do either one of those things. Well, 25 years later, I'm the person in charge of the books for both of our companies because we didn't have anybody to do that. And neither one of us had experience with it. And so I said, okay, I'll take that on. And so I, I figured it out, you know, and I'm doing something now in that regard that I never thought that I would be able to do years and years ago. So part of having a successful business, I think this is true for fiction and nonfiction writers, is that you have to be able to grow and step out of your comfort zone and educate yourself on the things that you don't know how to do. I mean, some things you just have to learn enough to get by. You don't have to invest a lot of time, but some things you really have to know, you know, what you're doing until you get to the point where you can hire people. And I think that that's the second thing that it took us so long to learn was that we should have hired people a lot sooner. We had the the resources to do it, but we just, we didn't have time. We were so busy doing everything. And that's the weird kind of catch me too, is that we don't have time, you know, so we need to hire someone, but, oh, we don't have time to hire someone. And so we eventually got to the place where we were turning down perfectly good opportunities that would have been really great for the business because we didn't have time. We said, okay, stop. We have to do something about this. We have to bring people on. And so I think that would be a bit of advice for people who are headed down that track and they're achieving a measure of success and their business is growing is that you have to be willing to step out and educate yourself about the things that you're not good at. And then the things that you don't want to do, or that you can't do, if you're able to hire someone, do it. I mean, that's part of, I think, 
being a, a good business person. And that's what you are as a writer. You have a business. And my husband, who's been an entrepreneur for years, always said, as the business leader, you should be doing what only you can do. I can do everything. I can do all the little stuff, but really there are certain things that only, only Angela and I can do. And we need to outsource as much of the other stuff as we can so that we can focus on the things that make our business great and that, that make our books really helpful. So mm. lessons learned. Yeah. Well, I think that's really important, but it's interesting because of course there's two of you and I can hear people going, but there's two of them. So why can't they do everything? I mean, the first person I ever hired was a bookkeeper. And of course we need accountants and you need some legal freelance help and things like that. But what have you felt were the most important things that you did hire out or get freelance people? Well, the accountant was the first person. My husband, again, he's super great at math and had his own businesses and was doing his own accounting. And so he did our he did our accounting for the first couple of years. But then when we started working with One Stop for Writers and we've got three partners basically all in different countries, he was like, you know what? <laughs> this is getting a little too complicated for me. And I said, okay, this is silly. Like we should just hire somebody to do our taxes. So that was something that I kind of want to smack myself for not doing earlier. But then we also hired Mindy, who is our blog wizard. And she basically does everything at the blog. She schedules all the guest posts. She collects the ideas and vets them. She puts all the posts up at the blog. She handles a lot of the comments and interacting with people. So that created a lot of free time for me and Angela from stuff that we were doing that now someone else is doing. And so we can dedicate our time somewhere else. Mm. The next person is absolutely a marketing person for Angela. She's been doing all of it and and she needs somebody to help her with that. So we're excited to be able to do that pretty soon. Yeah. So basically it's the dealing with the finances and it's interesting. I do think it's important for people. If you are getting to that point, you definitely need professionals to help with your finances. And I just was out of control, even just with my books, which are just the sort of monthly thing. And Mm -hmm. then as you say, marketing, I think those are probably still for everyone, the two biggest things that, that we do hire, but yeah, so that's fantastic. And it's lovely to hear about your business model as well. I did want actually, just before we finish, we're almost out of time, but one of the things that I noticed, because we, I think we both got approached by the same company for licensing, maybe it was South Korean or there was something where I was like, oh, look, you know, uh, that agency deals with your foreign rights somewhere else. So tell us about IP licensing and how foreign rights plays into the business. Yeah, that was something that we kind of dismissed for the longest time. Just again, no time. We had done all of the self-publishing for everything. And so we assumed that that's how eventually when we moved into foreign markets that we would just do it ourselves because that's you know what we did. But we had no idea how to do it, didn't have the time. So we just kind of kept putting it off. And then, yeah, a Korean publisher us and said, hey, are the Korean rights for the emotion of the source available? And we thought, okay, we're just leaving money on the table at this point. This is silly. So we realized we don't have to do it ourselves. We can actually, this is something that we can outsource. So we found an agent that specializes only in foreign rights deals, which was perfect because we didn't really need anything domestically. And so we went to her and said, here's what we're looking for. Here's this offer that we have. And she's like, here's the paperwork. And nine years later, our books are in 10 languages. And we have contracts coming in seemingly every two or three months for our new books from the existing publishers that we're working with or from new markets. We just signed a contract with Greece and we're working on something with France. So that was something that that really kind of came out of nowhere. Seemingly, we haven't done a a whole lot of work in terms of we're not marketing in Greece and Turkey and all of those things. It's just, it's something that we 
realize how beneficial it was until we got into it. I mean, our foreign rights sales account for a quarter of our sales at this point. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I'm really glad you said that. I'm glad I asked that at the end. I was just like, because I know that's important, but I didn't realize how big a deal it was. So that is fantastic. Right. So we're out of time. So where can people find you and the various thesauruses and everything you do online? Yes. Our blog is writershelpingwriters.net. That's where the blog is and all of the books, information on the books can be found there. And then onestopforwriters.com is our subscription-based website that has a character builder, story mapping tool. It has all of our our thesaurus, the entry portions in digital form, a huge collection of of all of our thesaurus information there. Mm, Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Becca. That was great. Thank you so much for having me. So I hope you found the interview with Becca interesting and that you're considering how to better use conflict in your stories. So remember, the second volume of the Conflict Thesaurus is out on the 6th of September 2022. And of course, all those thesauri are super useful resources. I have many of them in paperback as reference books. So I have another in between episode coming up this week, an interview with Ryan Dingler from Google about their auto narration service for audiobooks. I gave an overview of AI narration in episode 623 back in May, but that was across all the different platforms. So this is specifically about Google auto narration. We go into what is available in their currently free program, objections to AI narration, as well as future possibilities and opportunities for growth. Next Monday, I'll be talking about estate planning for authors with Michael Leron, which is a fascinating talk about how you can put things in place for the future. In the meantime, happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.